Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is In Between Stations Radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA. Good morning, or good night, depending on what side of the world you're on. Welcome to In Between Stations Radio. Well, I think this is the second day of December, or night. Um, I was just outside taking my annual little walk I do in the early morning. Sometimes I run in the early morning or at night. There's something really beautiful about running in the evening time, or before the sun comes up anyway, because you can really see the stars, especially in the winter time when the clarity of the air, you know, here at Flagstaff where I live, I actually live a little over 7,000 feet by this big scenic mountain we call Mount Eldon. And Mount Eldon sets against the San Francisco peaks. Everything here is volcanic. I think we have over 600 volcanoes. Um, not active, but they come and go. Have a couple friends that are volcanologists at uh, uh, NAU, and uh, this landscape periodically becomes extremely active. It's not dormant, and we're just in a quiet time. And so these tremendous explosions take place. And you can see them on all different levels if you take a walk in the daytime. You can see them at night. <laughs> uh, the last one they erupted, of course, was Sunset Crater. Um, I think they placed that date. They're pretty accurate because of the magnetic levels in the, in the rock and stuff around uh, Sunset Crater. I think right around uh, 1086 A.D. So... Close to a thousand years ago, we had our last big eruption, and um, there's all kinds of different types we've had, and there will be a lot more. This is an ongoing process. So the San Francisco Peaks was a, was a classic deep vented volcano that was over 16,000 feet high. Like when you get in Peru, you get in these uh, little towns in some even big cities like Arequipa, where there are these huge, massive volcanoes that are active. You can see smoke coming out of the vent, you know, little plumes of smoke. Um, and this one in Arequipa, I think, is close to 20,000 feet high, with permanent snow on the top, with smoke coming out from the volcano vent at the top. Well, that's how the San Francisco peaks were a long time ago, and about half of it blew off. And now you, and this is what you have now. So um, that was a, a huge catastrophic event, uh, probably even bigger than Mount St. Helens. And so we're, you know, the landscape here is a reflection of just endless amounts of volcanoes in various stages and and tremendous explosions. Some of them were like blowing out a quarter of a mile of earth, and there's just a big hole left. And these, this, this will keep happening. We're just in a quiet time. You know, humans, the lifespan of a human is just like so insignificant uh, compared to geological time. Millions and billions of years. Night walks are, are nice, especially in this landscape. Um, it's a little different when you're in a wilderness area and you're by yourself. Um, You've got to be a little more cautious. Um, especially in outlying areas here because there's so many uh, holes, deep vented holes in the ground from 
previous volcanic activity, especially at Wapaki National Monument. Uh, okay in the daytime. At night, I don't think so. There's just hundreds and hundreds of these deep volcanic vents, holes that are still in the landscape. Some are, I have a friend, he actually is a scientist, and he repels down into these holes. He studies um, the life the types of life forms that live in these uh, these old volcanic vents. Flagstaff has this immense underground system of tunnels and vents uh, all the way to the Grand Canyon. The Hopis know about this. So some of the clans at Hopi, you know, people always like to say this is what Hopi says. This is what goes on at Hopi. And I always say it depends on the village you're in. It depends on the priest or elder you're with, the clan. Um, the Kiva. Um, there is a central belief system, of course, but it varies from village to village. And in fact, Hopi is not a central place. It's actually consists of all these different villages that have different personalities and even, even different dialects of, of speaking Hopi. But some of these clans, um, some leaders at Hopi, have this mythology that there was these great underground cities uh, in, uh, in the Grand Canyon, which is coincidentally, uh, the Grand Canyon is connected to the underground world, the land of death. Yeah, so there's this whole mythology of this underground world that connects to one of their deities, uh, Masao, who's a very sacred and powerful deity. It's in charge of this, this world, the so-called fourth world by the Hopis. And this is, a, this is another world, another reality, another dimension uh, that leads into the land of the dead, which is not a dead place, but a place that's much like this. Reverse seasons, but doing the work and doing many of the same things that we do here. But there's all these underground cities and, and pathways that exist underneath the landscape of Flagstaff, Grand Canyon, mythological-wise. There actually are these amazing underground systems of tunnels that just go for hundreds if not thousands of miles you know interconnecting with each other and going around in circles there's a whole vent system uh, that has you know according to the type of weather system over the surface high pressure low pressure that these tremendous winds moist warm winds come out of these tunnels all these hundreds thousands of miles of tunnels that's in the landscape here going all the way to Grand Canyon because of its volcanism uh, this is how this is how active volcanoes work, and connected to that mythology are cities and underground people, and this is where you get this legend of the of these Egyptian. <laughs> it's always the Egyptians, right? Poor guys. Well, their civilization has went on for three thousand years. Ours has been around what, maybe two hundred and fifty? Can you imagine three thousand years of a continuous system? You know, dynamic. Um, moving along but mostly keeping the same belief systems like the book of the dead is found throughout um you know this belief system when you die and go into the land of reeds and paradise um that whole system uh, and you know this is something quite different about egypt is their belief system in this this life is is for you to prepare to enter your next phase in the land of death so it's extremely important with egyptians and tribes um so yeah, this whole uh, mythology, you occasionally read, you know, conspiracy theories and stuff that all these little little people, underground people, 
live in the Grand Canyon and underneath the earth there and there's all these pathways that go in there but there are these little people uh, the Hopis have a name for them mudheads coimpses they call them they have all kinds of it's a very deep intricate culture with lots of mythologies that are connect to very real things so um and go on and on about that. Hopi is extremely old and there's a lot of complex stories and mythologies of clans and uh, you could fill volumes of books. But more so it's not books of Hopi but it's these stories and these mythologies and these ways you live your life that are passed down from generation to generation in the kivas in the form of the dances and songs. So, evening time actually we're not that far from sunrise this morning here um, the same constellations uh, last night Orion and uh, Betelgeist uh, this beautiful red star that sets you know in Orion uh, the planet Mars is up there it's, uh, it's all in the west now setting everything kind of rotates around the Polaris the little dipper which is which is up there so you can see constellations like Gemini the twins all those bright stars up there, Cancer that sets below, Gemini is just rising up now on the on the eastern edge. Leo, which is my birth constellation, is coming up. Um, and it's just amazing the stars you can see at night and the clarity, especially in the winter. And at this elevation, we have a very famous observatory here that discovered uh, the planet or moon, whatever you want to call Pluto. It's constantly in debate back and forth. Is it a planet? Is it an escape moon? Is it a place we can build a Walmart? <laughs> Believe me, they would build a Walmart there if they could. And maybe someday they will have something like that there. Uh, we can't leave things alone, can we? Like the poor moon, you know, we, everybody's celebrating. Hopis have prophecies of the moon. If we mess around with the moon, it will affect the earth. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's some clans there and some spiritual leaders that have prophecies that go along with disturbing the moon. That when the moon is disturbed, that there'll be cataclysmic events take place on the earth. Uh, not so much, I don't know if just being on the moon, but affecting that whole uh, peaceful tranquility that's on the moon. Similar to the prophecies of the West and the Southwest when they were overrun by um, the invading cultures from Europe. And So yeah, we take our ideologies to these planets. You know, mining. We're going to mine the moon. There's some very rare elements uh, and minerals there and we're looking at mining the moon kind of goes along with P.K. Dick the science fiction writer and his whole visions and prophetic writings uh, he didn't always always you know if you know about Philip K. Dick and I talk about him all the time he had these visions uh, that looked into the future and he included them in his uh, fictional semi-autobiographical stories he wrote a lot of books uh, and he seen that that's what we did. That in the future we would go to all these planets and do all this mining. You know, if you watch Blade Runner, um, which is from Do Electric Sheep Dream, which is a book I've read several times and I like a lot. Um, it's a little depressing, but it looks at a future world that radiation has killed most of the living things on the planet Earth. It doesn't really say why. And these androids that we've made uh, are the mining people on these different planets. 
and occasionally they escape and come back to Earth because they have these very short-term lives. Well, you know, you've watched the Blade Runner series. The book Do Electric Sheep Dream, though, is a little more depressing, if you can think of being more depressing than the movie, <laughs> and a little more uh, fatalistic. So, um, right, moving away from that. Uh, I was just looking at space weather. I guess there was a there's a huge uh, sunspot, a two double sunspot with these dark cores. It's very large, and you know these sunspots uh, evolve and change constantly. Uh, it's not a solar flare yet, but it's moving towards that. And of course, we're in this very active 11-year cycle of the sun, uh, and um, we're I think we're moving towards the the height of that soon. I think we're in the 25th sun cycle, you know, there's 11 year period since 1755 that have been measured by white people, as my Hopi friend reminds me, because they have a very sophisticated uh, solar uh, and astronomy uh, astronomical connection at Hopi. It's been going on thousands of years, extremely aware of the sun and its cycles and where, it's, where it is, and this ties into their religion, and uh, so he constantly reminds me that, hey, we know about sunspots. If you want to get into some, there's all these different words for Hopi, uh, especially the Sun Clan that use uh, they use for the sun. Uh, Daawa has all these uh, sophisticated aspects of different kinds of solar flares, of different kinds of heat. Um, yeah, Daawa is a central part of the Hopi religious system, the sun. And so, and, you know, if you get into Peru and Machu Picchu, where I've been, and the, the great solar temple that's there, and the solar temples uh, in Cusco, uh, the sun is a... I mean, when, the, when you fly into the, the airport there in... Uh, I almost said Riyadh. <laughs> uh, when you find the, fly into the airport in Lima and get off your plane and go into the, the main airport there, there's a huge, huge sun on the wall. Uh, a little similar to the Hopi sun, uh, but a little more uh, foreboding. And so, solar worship, uh, solar connection. I mean, we we love to use that word worship. That's kind of a Christian. I don't, you know, tribes don't really. I don't think it's worship. It's a part of their belief system that's continued in this wholeness of everything. Same at Hopi. So since 1775, we've been measuring these 11 years. Uh, cycles on the sun with the sunspots apparently we know this is associated with with active weather you know that that pushes itself towards our planet and barrage with these with these solar storms and so uh in i think 2019 was in this current cycle started and will end in 2025 at first they thought it would be a very quiet cycle uh, it hasn't been that way it's been extremely active and it continues to get more active as we progress towards July 2025, something like that. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, we've had already had a few X flares. These are the biggest flares, uh, and it looks like we're going to have a lot more. And these are this is an interesting time period for for several reasons. I guess my thoughts on the, on the show uh, is about this whole thing is um, no man's an island. I am going to take that the other direction and say every man's an island, every woman's an island, especially in these modern times. This disconnection we're beginning to feel with each other, this, 
there's so many of us now that there's not an appreciation of of seeing somebody else a lot of time. You know, you go into a store and there's, you know, we have a couple of stores here in Flagstaff, you know, because um, because we're surrounded um, by these different reservations and tribes, and a lot of them come in from the vastness that's on the reservation, where there'd be sometimes miles and miles between uh, little towns and, and hogans and uh, pueblos, uh, and they come into the to Flagstaff uh, to shop. So there can be a lot of people on, on something like Walmart, or, or we have what we call Safeway Grocery Store here. There can be as many as seven or eight hundred people in some in those places sometimes, and so you're really in close proximity to each other. And I think as that gets, as Flagstaff grows and becomes a city that's f- filled full of people, you know, and it's and someday when it becomes a million people, and it's, you know, they have water wells and they've drilled and they're, and they're preparing for that. I don't know how they're going to do it. It's as there begins to be more of this, it's less and less comfortable. Um, to celebrate, hey, here's here's you know if you're out if you're gone for a long time, and you're out there on the landscape, and you're away from people, especially for days and sometimes even weeks. It's 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 nice to see somebody, you know. It's nice to come back into town and uh, talk to people if you've been away from them for a while. It's nice to get away from them too. <laughs> uh, I always like to say that's one of the differences between uh, the Pueblo people, like the Hopi and Zuni, and the Dene. Dene are famous for living in vast solitude and distances between each other. Pueblo people are kind of cramped in the in the little village there, and there's a lot of them, and they love to communicate, and they're very extremely social. And, uh, Dene people are traditionally uh, when they have their sheep herds, uh, and they're out there. Um, taking care of their sheep and their cattle and they have their dogs you may have one person and I have a friend he spent his entire uh, early life growing up with his great-grandfather and he just didn't see people a lot he was out in the vastness of Monument Valley and Blue Canyon and you just didn't see people sometimes for weeks and months because you're you know you're watching the herd and Dene people uh, traditional Navajos that do this are very familiar with solitude and they're very able they're able to cope well with being away from someone and being connected to the landscape and that's what's it's in their songs and in their ceremonies uh, and I've grown up with Dene Navajo people especially ones that were herders and I love to sit with them uh, it's one of the reasons I go out onto the vastness of the landscape especially here in the southwest and out by Navajo Mountain and what used to be, uh, still is Glen Canyon, but before Lake Powell was there, is still extremely sophisticated and broken, turned upside down landscape that you couldn't you couldn't explore in five lifetimes, and even more so before Lake Powell was in there. Uh, just a very complex canyon system, still to this day unknown in many places. You can actually go into canyons where no one's ever been there, at least white. <laughs> There's a book written called The Place No One Knew, you know, that talks about this immensely beautiful place called Glen Canyon before it was submerged by Lake Powell. Of course, with this horrible drought we're having going on 20 years now, a lot of Glen Canyon has begun to come back up, and we're starting to see just the tremendous beauty that, that was there before it was invaded by hundreds of feet of water.
and um, but the complexity of that landscape even today is mind-boggling and I spent 20 years going into the, all these different canyons uh, some were mapped some were not mapped uh, this is before GPS and even if you have G GPS you can get your butt so lost <laughs> or you can fall into a hole which I've done uh, and almost died full of what's called quicksand um, now that's kind of everybody has fun and it's a big challenge to repel down into these things you know I never used ropes and stuff uh, and people die every year so it's you know this is a pretty scary place that seems relatively safe until you get into the complexities of these little canyons are just hundreds thousands of them that just weave and move through this landscape and there's ancient pueblos there's artifacts there that are unbelievable of course this the the Hisatsumone is the Hopi column the ancient people the Zuni have another name for them and the Dene have another name uh, these ancient ancestral Pueblo were all over the southwest and we just we still don't know the extent of that I mean here in Flagstaff there's and I you know I run the wilderness a lot so I know it well and with my Hopi friends as well there's a lot of different little Pueblos and villages and I've talked about this in previous episodes it's mind-boggling how many people lived here and and how long they lived here so one day I was out in the uh, painted desert I don't like to oh I don't like to talk about exactly where I was at or where I go I just don't do that anymore because people mark it and then they go there or, or even these places are so fragile just a few people can really ruin they can really destroy or ruin an area just by being there and picking up shards and going in these ancient dwellings and a lot of them have been untouched they're not mapped no one knows about them especially if you're a runner like me and an explorer of these vast un still unknown regions even in the 21st century there's places I know that people have never been in, in you know modern times I don't like to talk about where they're at specifically I don't give GPS coordinates to hell with that <laughs> And I like to uh, I like to keep my discoveries private, um, and I, for for several reasons. One, because they're extremely sacred, and I don't like to mess around with artifacts. I like to leave them as they are. And I know there's entire panels of petroglyphs that's unknown still, not not by Hopi. <laughs> Their clans know about these places and certain spiritual leaders. And these are not just randomly carved. Hey, we don't have anything to do today, Bob, so let's go up on this cliff wall here, make a ladder, and let's just do, ran you know, like like sketches in a notebook. <laughs> these have, this is a complex language, this is a complex knowledge system that's that's denoted sometimes. I mean, there's occasionally, yeah, I, I was here stuff on there, you know, for thousands of years, but clans leave their markers. There's a couple of, there's a place here in, uh, up by Hopi where these different clans that did this um, ancient ceremony that went down into Grand Canyon, uh, Little Colorado, for hundreds if not thousands of years as the clans did this long 95, 100 mile run uh, one way. so. You can imagine if it's two ways, how, how long it's going to be. And as they passed by, they'd stop in this amazing sandstone area where it has thousands and thousands of petroglyphs. So not only does it give the marking of the clan, but it communicates religious 
ideals uh, and very spiritual things and these are doorways to the ancestors they're not just writing the the writing like much of the Mesoamerica is considered living the Egyptians considered this too uh, that the, 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 the writing was alive that it was living that it was a portal into the other dimension so very sacred uh, when you see that and so very interesting that way because that is a doorway and you and this treated as such and you have to make offerings and you have to be uh, connected in a certain way if you're from a certain clan you have knowledge on what that means so you know if, and that depends if you go on the landscape and have lots of Hopi friends it depends on what clan they're from it depends on what kind of knowledge and society they're in some Hopi friends I have can read an entire face of a cliff wall and know exactly what it's talking about simply because that education is in their clan is in their society other Hopis don't know how to read that and that's what you have anciently is these different migrational groups that are clans when they when they joined together and became what we call Hopi now they had all this knowledge from different directions each clan was told to circle the earth circle the landscape and gain knowledge and bring it back uh, to what's called the center place the place where we where these tribes come together so I was out in the landscape in the painted desert you know I think it's about oh, 75 85 maybe even 100 miles um, south of Flagstaff <laughs> roadless you can't drive your vehicle into this area you've got to as I do, run into the area, you know, sometimes five, ten miles or more, and then you arrive in this place. And so, and then I sit uh, in these ancient villages, and just, I mean, I'm in awe of the, not only the, the writing on the cliff walls, but the kind of uh, doorways and the, the architecture, and sometimes the shards and pieces of pottery go for miles. And the, the designs, you know, and this is how archaeologists date places and know about trade and migration is because different places have different kinds of pottery. And when you look under a microscope, you can, you can see that, you know, where, where the elements for that, that pot came from. So you can, you can often date a site or, or a group of people by the pottery you find there. And some of these places like the one I'm talking about, obviously many different it's connected to many different clans and many different migrational people and the really big pueblos like Chaco and some of those you have thousands of different kinds of pottery and, and you can date a site by looking at that and I understand that to some degree because I was an archaeologist although I'm not you know I don't practice that but I, I kind of know what I'm dealing with when I look at a shard if there's if there's a lot of them and I know kind of the signatures of those and and it gives you kind of a distribution of time you know white man's time with um with these tribes they have different they have different ways of dating uh things if you go to the middle east uh they don't it isn't 2022 they have a different way of keeping track of time in the islamic religion especially in saudi arabia and places like this you have a different date it isn't the same dating system as we have here in, you know, in the Western world. And it's the same with these tribes. They have different dating systems. So it throws them off when you start throwing around, you know, oh, you're a thousand years old. Oh, the, oh, 
old Arabi, you know, which is one of the oldest continuous, continuously occupied villages in the United States, I think. 2,500 years, something like that. But see, when you give time and dates like this, it's according to the outsider. That's the person keeping track of the dating system there. Um, so when you read a book, you know, they're going to give you these years and dates and the, the way they dated it according to dead chronology, the wood and the pine trees that was used. And I, I, I think this is getting towards uh, different types of thinking, different types of culture have different modes of being successful. There's not one, you know, we, we get this thing in our head that, oh, the United States knows how to do everything. Oh, we're so successful. Oh, we want everyone in the world to be American, you know, which is, I think, kind of a lot of bullshit. Um, and then you get these, these, these cultures that are thousands of years old that have been in the same place for a very long time that have all this immense knowledge of the weather, of the landscape, of the kind of animals, of these drought cycles, of these moisture cycles. It's in their mythologies and they, the types of clouds, the, the kind of forest fires that burned a long time ago. And, and there's this whole cycle they see from living here for thousands of years that newcomers, you know, Flagstaff is a little over 100 years old. That's kind of laughable to a Hopi because in, in our time dating because thousands of years there are people living in this area and stories and connections to uh, the mountains here and, and the land the landforms all connect to to this vast system of knowledge and mythology and stories and the land is you and the, and you are the you and the land aren't separate from each other and they and they have this whole sort of um, ecology built into their system and when a new group comes in that doesn't understand that and kills all the animals like all the wolves and all the you know the the mogion grizzly bear the mogion elk um, they're all extinct now and in a little less than 50 years they were all shot and killed and they're not you know the elk we have here is transplanted from yellowstone we didn't have any elk at all the, the indigenous elk is gone killed completely uh, we just have a few Mexican wolves left where there was thousands of them. The jaguar came clear up in, into Flagstaff here. We have bones and we have artifacts of that animal. It's found all around the Flagstaff area and you rarely find jaguars coming over the Mexican border now, especially with the wall that's been stopped. So within a hundred years periods, we, you know, just newcomers that don't have a knowledge of the ecology, don't have a knowledge of overuse, you know, Hopis, some Hopis like to say, hey, we learned all this stuff the hard way. <laughs> we used too much of something and then a horrible drought came and we didn't have enough water and uh, we got in fights these villain, you know, over resources and and little wars and skirmishes. This is before it became Hopi when you had these different clans coming in and, and they've learned these things the hard way and they keep saying, you're going to have to learn this the hard way too only there's a lot more of you. So when you make a mistake it can be catastrophic compared to to mistakes we made, only a small amount of people were involved. So I'm in this incredible ancient village, uh, just from looking at the pottery, I, it was an older type, an older type of grayware that uh, there was a, a great abundance of. In fact, I was finding almost complete pots. Some people think that would be amazing. And I don't, I leave those alone, but looking at the designs and the way they're made, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, hey, this, this, this village here is hasn't is a couple thousand years old, and it looks like the occupation of it was a long period of time. 
longer than two or three hundred years, maybe more like five, six hundred. And it's, and it's showing Chaco Canyon influence. It's showing Mexican influence from uh, Mesoamerica, from the big cities there. It's showing northern influence by the pottery. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at this stuff, you know, and I have uh, my dog Gunner uh, with me who knows the landscape is good or better than me. And his sense of things is just simply amazing. This, this healer... <laughs> is smarter than me and he senses things that I don't and when we're connected together we have I like to say we have seven senses because his sense is connected to mine and it is we're, we're kind of the same being when we're on the when we're on the landscape and so we have this sense we have this sense of where we help each other and we're able to go these vast distances and know where we're at and, and what we need to do and if a, if a, a bad storm is coming or if a wild animal is approaching uh, it's it's good to have somebody like Gunner. That's why I like to call him my little brother because he is every bit that. So we you know we're walking along and it's kind of dusty. It's hot. This is in the summertime. It can get pretty hot out in the painted desert. 115, 120 sometimes. I don't know if 120. I mean they they, they say it gets that hot. It doesn't matter when you're up around 100 degrees in the middle of the summer. Um, it gets hot. It, it's hot. You know, especially if you're away from swimming pools. And I, I like to wear layers of clothes. I learned that in the Army. Uh, I learned it from being in the Middle East, that you wear layers of clothes, and you can take them off or put them on, and the way your sweat evaporates from your skin. This thing where we walk around almost naked, and we think that the ancient people did that? Uh-uh. No, that they, and, and looking at these sacred Kachina dancers, the older ones all have these immense amount of clothes they wear, layers of clothes. They knew about the sun. <laughs> You know, these tribes know about the sun. It can cause cancer. It can make you sick. They cover their body. You I mean, sometimes they take their shirt off. Uh, even today, if you go out with a good Hopi farmer, he won't be in shorts. And I think you know that. You wear Levi's. You know, when, I grew up on a farm. You don't wear shorts when you're out haying, you know. Um, when you're out in the field. I mean, maybe now when, when you have these air-conditioned tractors and stuff. But... um. When you're doing manual labor, you wear long sleeves, uh, long pants. Uh, in the older times, they wore like these sort of dresses like they do in the Middle East. These, uh, you know, what allows the air to travel through and uh, your skin cools off by sweat evaporating. If it's just bare skin and it stays dry all the time, you don't get this coolness. And as a medic in the military and dealing with heat casualties in the desert a lot, um, you realize you've got to wear layers of clothes. Uh, between your skin and the clothes and allowing air to circulate so it stays so you stay cool and if you get too hot in the winter you sweat a lot and then your clothes get wet and then you, that's another problem there's all these strat strategies that come with knowing a landscape and especially when you solo there's a lot of cool clothes now you can buy Gore-Tex and things like that that are that are helpful with that uh, if you're out in the landscape in the wilderness a long time, you don't walk around <laughs> naked. I mean, there's a nice deep pool in the sandstone canyon. Yeah, off goes the clothes. You and your girlfriend or wife jump in there and, you know, all the beautiful things that go along with that. But you put you put them back on, you know, especially if you are you don't have your car or your trailer that's the size of the house, that you're on the landscape. There's a real art form to that, and it takes many years to learn 
what you do and how you survive and the etiquette not only of surviving but of appreciation and sacredness and here on the landscape there's many different sacred places that you'll approach that are very old like the, like the place I'm talking about in the Painted Desert and there's things that you do there's um, steps that you take so you don't disturb an area or you make a, an ancestral spirit angry um, there's a way you approach that and as you know it's not like the tourist thing in Hawaii woohoo look at all these ruins hey let's jump in let's rip a piece off and put it in our bag and let's pick up some pottery let's dig up some a grave here and take one of these skulls on wow look Bob there's look at this old skull that I have on top of my fireplace there's all you know if you know a lot about about these tribes uh, I wouldn't be doing that at all um, there's all kinds of uh, blessings and sacred um, ceilings done that on graves and there's all kinds of repercussions that can come with this stuff when you dig it up same thing like in Egypt uh, you just here especially when you because the the tribes are intact uh, the ceremonial knowledge is intact you kind of know what you're dealing with and my thing is leave it alone <laughs> in fact there's some places you go I don't even approach uh, my, my dog Gunner is so good at this his, his name Hisapoko, uh, ancient dog. He knows if there's a place that has kind of a bad energy, we don't go there, and he won't. He'll just he refuse. <laughs> I have to pull him up sometimes, and I'll realize, no, Dave, we don't, we shouldn't go up here because I've learned from sad experience that almost 99.9 percent .9 of the time, Gunner will be right about something. He's also led me to a fantastic. We call them ruins, ancient villages fantastic pueblos almost virtually untouched and no one knows about them I know when we fly over and do this remote sensing we have GPS and satellites now a lot of these things are hidden you've got to be on the ground to see them uh, you have to be there and they will remain hidden in the cliffside of the mountain we have these big forest fires like we've had it reveals the tremendous amount of various kinds of occupation that went on here for thousands of years. The vegetation grows up, and you know, I walked uh, currently to a to a mountain that I'd spent a lot of uh, my time here in Flagstaff. I know it quite well. After it burned the grass and the trees, there were just thousands and thousands of shards, and there were villages and Pueblos I didn't even know were there were suddenly revealed because the fire had burned around them and taken all the stuff away and I could see the extensive amount of living that went on on this mountain that I didn't really understand was there before and it just my my mountain my jaw I I was just stood there and I in awe of all the artifact and, and the story of the complexity of that landscape I knew in part but when the fire went through it I really could see it for what it was and it was just a mind blower. So I, I imagine it's about noontime. The sun's up there. It's getting pretty hot. You know, I have my hat on. Uh, I am an iron gunner. Have run out there. You know, before he injured his leg, he was an amazing runner dog. He could run every bit as far as I could. So, so we got to go back. <laughs> That's the thing about running one way is you got to go back. In the summer, you have a, a longer daylight, so we're able to do this. So we just sat down in this just amazing ancient village. And there's pots intact. You know, I could have taken one of them and sold them on the black market. I don't think so. <laughs> but it's there. And in, in, in white man's terms, that stuff's worth a lot of money if you want to pick it up and put it in your backpack, which I never do. 
So I'm doing the things that I've been taught by my Hopi brothers, you know, to do and resting, you know, in the shade underneath a juniper tree and I carry water for Gunner. If he doesn't get his water, he doesn't go. (laughs) Gunner has learned if he gets thirsty, he just sets and refuses to move. It's like, hey, Dave, I'm thirsty. You know, dogs have a higher temperature. Their bodies run at a hotter temperature. And uh, coyotes especially know this. They know how to survive in tremendous amounts of heat. They don't just walk around in the hot sun all day. Gunner's like, what are we doing? We just ran 15 miles. You know, we, we rest in between these and we, we have water breaks. But if he wants a drink, you know, I'll, I'll, I know that and I have to give it to him. So we're drinking our water, you know, we're underneath this big, huge, ancient juniper tree. Three people couldn't get their arms around the trunk. It's a thousand years old or more. So we're just sitting there. The dust is blowing and in the distance, you know, I can't hear it, but there's these big, huge... Uh, thunderstorms come in from Mexico really big you can see them just building up over these mesa tops you know the con- the convection of the heat orographic lifting you know the, the heat rushes up the mountain and cools off and if there's moisture in the air then these clouds form something the Hopis know all about their languages boy Hopis if you get a good Hopi that's traditional it's been through the the knowledge and education system and speaks the language you know all about how the weather develops especially if they're a farmer um, they have all these different names for clouds and lightning and cloud hundreds of names <laughs> i can't even keep track of lightning going sideways upside down coming coming out of the ground different colors of lightning what it means what kind of cloud it's connected to um, it's very sophisticated uh, and I, we think our weather is sophisticated, uh, and there's mythology and stories connected to that. So there's all these storms that I know sooner or later may be coming here, but you know they're still a long ways away, and you have time to think about it most of the time when you're out there. So it's mostly blue sky above us, but it's dusty. The wind's blowing a little bit. It's hot. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to think about we got to go back, you know, so we can't stay here too long. And uh, out of nowhere, this amazing... At first, I thought it was a wolf. You know, I see wolves occasionally. They're very rare, but I'm one of those people here in Flagstaff that have a chance to connect to wolves, uh, the Mexican wolf. And I kind of know how they look. And this one doesn't look quite... It's like a Mexican wolf. You know, Gunner's about... Gunner's very large healer. He's from the, the, the real stumpy tail healers from Australia which are kind of like the healer breed on steroids. They're bred to be very muscular, similar to a bulldog, but to have uh, unbelievable endurance. And Gunner descends from that that type of healer, which is, which is uh, the dingo was interbred back into the, the stumpy tail breed. So they're, very, they're closer to the wild uh, dingo dog than most. And so Gunner has a very wild aspect to him. Um, which makes him really fun to be around because when he gets on the landscape he kind of has this you know this knowledge he's born with as a pup what to do when you're out there like in Australia it gets hot and this is similar landscape to Australia this is, and I, I actually call it the outback so this amazing canine wild canine and I kind of know by the way he's walking because he's walking out of the dust that it's a coyote Coyotes have a very particular way they hold their head down and they walk. They're extremely cautious animals. And they they're not they don't commonly approach you. This one's approaching us. 
And Gunner, you know, I can feel the strain on because I have a leash on him sometimes because I don't want him to take off running. If Gunner takes off after antelope, he'll be gone for an hour. He just loves to run around with antelope herds. He doesn't ever hurt anything. He does hurt it, though. <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to hurt antelope, but it don't work too well. But he doesn't care. He loves to run and run. So I have to keep him on a leash just because I don't feel like running after him <laughs> for an hour, and he knows that I can't catch him. His thing is to disappear and then to be gone for an hour, and then he sneaks up behind me when I'm running. Hey, Gunner, Gunner, where are you? He'll come in behind me and nip me with his nose, his wet nose. Say, hey, Dave, here I am. You know, just kind of even scares me sometimes. So I, I have to have him on a leash sometimes. So he's on a leash, and I can feel the tension on the leash because he sees this, you know, I, I'm like, is it a coyote or is it a wolf? Is it a hybrid? Uh, which they don't, coyotes don't do that. It's not, hybrids are not very, koi wolves, uh, koi dogs are not too common here. Coyotes don't like breeding with dogs, even when they're in heat. Just isn't a big thing here. And back east it's a little more common, but not here. Um, so I'm wondering, is this a, a, you know, one of those rare coyote wolves? Because he's, he's bigger than Gunner. And coyotes just don't get that big. Gunner's 75 pounds, and this, this guy's, this you know, and I could tell it's a male. Uh, and here's the thing that's really a mind blower. It's almost pure white. And I can't tell completely if that's from the dust or just from the way he looks. If it's natural. And the closer the coyote gets, and he's walking towards us in a cautious way, but fairly bold. I'm like, oh my God, it's a white coyote. I mean, they, they do get black. But I think white's pretty rare among coyotes. You just don't. And you have these really blonde phases. They go from dark reds, browns, to real blonde. But this guy's almost white. And I'm sure a part of that's dust. And it's really strange. He walks right up to us. You know, Gunner's pretty tense because he's like, hey, this is my friend. I'm a canine. I know about you coyotes. I hang around with you guys. Uh, you, you know, so Gunner has, he has, there's this space between you and me and don't get here you're gonna have a problem but for some reason gunner's holding back and he's i don't know a couple of arm lengths away he just stops and and for some reason gunner holds back he's not his usual like growling and barking self and i, I just you know like i said i don't pet these animals i have a i have a i have a respectable distance the reason i don't think i've ever been bit i have been bit once by a wild animal. I'll go into that sometime later. But that's because I didn't... I reached my hand out. <laughs> I've learned... You know, there's this, There's all these protocols you have with wild animals, and you don't need a gun. You know, I don't live in gri grizzly bear country, uh, but um, I don't, I've never had to carry a gun. I've, since I got home from the war, I just don't do it. I grew up hunting. I know how to use a weapon. Uh, I used all kinds of different ones, automatic ones. But I don't carry him anymore. It's just the war was too much for me. So um, here's this coyote, this white coyote. I'm like, nobody's going to believe this. And of course, I think, should I get my cell phone on? But it's off. I never have my cell phone on when I'm out there. I just have it for emergencies. And I just got a newer one uh, that my daughter sent me. <laughs> I had this old little cell phone from 2010. I don't even know how it worked. But I got this new one now, and it takes nice pictures. And I had it off. I always have them off. I don't like them on unless I have an emergency or something. So I do think about, well, i got to take a picture. That nobody's going to believe this unless I take a picture. But then I'm like, no, you know, I don't have time for that. And his eyes are a green color. 
And I, you know, I don't remember ever seeing a coyote. <laughs> and he's just looking at me. And this is an extremely intelligent animal. And his body language is such like he's challenging us. He's like, you're in my territory. And you know, coyotes are really shy animals for the most part. They don't like to challenge you. Or they'll sit off at a distance and bark. That's telling you, hey, get away. I have pups here. The body language and the bark are, this is my den. A lot of people that have dogs, you know, and they walk in parks and they approach coyotes, especially in these thresholds between the city and the desert where you'll see coyotes come into the urban area. People don't know how, don't understand the coyotes saying, stay away, I have pups here, this is my home. And they'll bark at you and they have, and they're, they're very curious animals, extremely intelligent. But for the most part, urban people, city slickers, <laughs> don't know what to do with the coyote. But I've learned from lots of experience, both in town and out of town, the, the body language of coyotes. This one is very unusual. Uh, he is extremely intelligent. I've been around canines. You know, I have my dog, Gunner, who is like vastly intelligent animal. This coyote is on that same threshold. And, and he just looks, we make this direct eye contact. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable, but I'm also extremely uh, intrigued and I get this feeling that there's this he's saying to me and I'm saying to him this is all nonverbal you know and I watch my body language because he's reading that um, I get this feeling he's saying can we communicate with each other is there a way that we can breach our languages and 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 talk to each other to or, or at least communicate and what I get from him in a sense is uh, is he's just saying this is my territory this is where I live. What are you doing here? And, you know, so my feeling was to back off. And so I kind of, I kind of moved back and in respect to him. And, and then he just kind of sat on his haunches. You know, I have others broadcast about coyotes, intriguing, and just watch this. And, you know, Gunner's little like, hey, I, this is my kind, Dave. You're a different kind. This, this is a canine. He's like me. And, um, and I, I think, too, Gunner was like, what, and the coyote's saying, so what's this? What kind of wolf or coyote, what, what kind of, this is my species, what, what is this spotted? <laughs> you know, they both have really, Gunner has these real sharp, tall ears that healers have, and so does the coyote. The coyote's a lot more furry and a lot more white. Gunner's kind of white, too. You know, now I think about it, maybe he was like, what, why is this coyote on this leash thing? <laughs> Why are, you, why are you guys together? So this is what this episode uh, is about. Is this whole um, this whole distance that's between us as individuals? No man's an island, or maybe every man, every animal to some degree, every culture is a kind of island. And when you approach from the outside, a lot of things can happen because there's your world and the way you see things. There's your religion. There's your pack. And, and there's, there's your experience that you've had growing up, there's your landscape, uh, and there's all these things that you carry with you and how you interpret life, how you interpret the world, how you interpret the universe, uh, and the religion you have, the science you have. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, sometimes people say there's just one way to do science, and I'm like, well, it depends on 
who's funding that science, you know, how much money they have and what you're supposed to do. There is, you know, there's science itself. It's not good or bad. But there's the scientist that's influenced by money, by corporation, by culture, by religion even, uh, by morality. Um, and and you, you can see these things taking place. And so when you approach the, the other, when you're the stranger, or they're the stranger, there's this whole whole thing that takes place and I've had these confrontations no that's the wrong word I've had these I've had these experiences many many times with wild animals and and there's all these protocols you have to go through to, to protect yourself and also to say hey I'm a visitor and I'm respectful of where I'm at and you do this with coyotes and wolves and they know that the wolves are very very shy especially Mexican wolves they don't like humans they're out of there you know they're very cautious animals I, I have to say a wolf is even more flighty than a coyote, and that's saying a lot, because they know that's how they survive. They know humans are destructive. They know humans can hurt them. Um, and so I don't know what it was like in ancient times, but I, I bet it's similar. I mean, how, where do dogs come from? Why do we have dogs? Why do I have Gunner? It's this whole beautiful relationship that extends from the Ice Age, the Pleistocene. Um, the tribes here all had dogs, mostly... Uh, dogs that are interbred between coyotes and wolves um, most of those have you know in these burials you constantly find dogs and, and greatly love dogs because they're buried with all this pottery and and these relics and all, a lot of times they'll be with a little girl or or, or a, a priest uh, the, the dog the canine has a very special place in mythology it's interesting too when you talk to a traditional. And when I use this word traditional, I want to get. To, I, I want to make this clear, and I have it almost every broadcast, in the in the sense of like a Pueblo uh, native, like a Zuni or a Hopi, years and years in societies, in clans, where you're learning all these songs and you're learning these these dances and these ceremonial processes and the mythology they tie into and the history of your clan and how you react to something, how you react to the weather, how you react to an animal, how you react to a sacred site. It's immense education. And I've, I like I love this example. I have a friend that's a priest at one of the villages uh, that, that is the head of his clan, and he has a PhD. I think he has two PhDs. And he always says, it is nothing compared to the learning I've had to go through at Hopi. The learning at Hopi is so much more complex and so much more that you don't know even after 50 years of being in the Kiva of learning these things because there's each of these clans each of these societies have their own function have their own specialized education much like different kinds of doctors you know they do different things brain surgeons heart surgeons uh, hand specialists feet specialists Hopis have the same thing going on so the, the animal you meet has all that thing, all those things going on. There's a specialization in that area, in that locality. I know from running so much, I know the animal trails and, and, and footprints. I know what kind of animal that is. And I'll more often than not follow the animal trail, especially if I'm in town more. There's more people. I don't like to follow human trails because they're very chaotic. They don't know where they're going a lot of times. They're disrespectful. Uh, they're bare, so the rocks are exposed, and I fall down more on a human-made trail. If I'm running on pine needles, if I'm running in uh, untouched, you know, and animals tend to not bear the, you know, make the, the, 
the pathway bare. They, they walk in such a way that the, the softness of the pine needles and the ground, even the rock is still left there and you can navigate much e easier through um, unpathways as I call them. They're not, humans just rip through something. They love to make straight lines. You know, where we have these sort of serpentine moving pathways naturally, like the way rivers run, that's how an animal path runs, unless it's a domesticated animal and doesn't know what the hell it's doing. Then you get these kind of crazy, you know. But pathways go to water, they go to dens. So I like following those kind of, especially with antelope. Antelope are, are curious animals to follow, or rather they follow you. <laughs> so when I do these long, when I used to do these long ultra runs, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles, Antelope would, they're curious. Why is this Why is this thing, this whatever they call humans, or what their symbol is, or I don't know. They're like, well, why is he running out here? We don't ever see this. And so they get curious, and the antelope herd will actually follow you. And they have this uh, um, uh, interesting way of following you, where they kind of peel off. They, they actually set themselves strategically up on the pathway. They kind of know where you're going. And they peel off. As you get closer, they'll peel off and curve around, and they'll come up and go behind you and the herd sets itself up so it watches you and you see this interaction between coyotes and antelope and 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 wolves and, and even bears you have this whole kind of like and so what does it mean when you approach the other I mean we always talk about aliens from outer space for God's sakes we can't even get along as a species when you go to the grocery store <laughs> I just seen two people having a fight it wasn't a fist fight but yelling at each other in a parking lot you know, we can't even get along with each other. Why, why do we think if aliens came or we went to an alien world, we wouldn't have the same kind of problems with communicating? We can't. We know the way we slaughter and kill animals uh, relentlessly without even thinking about it. Just because you have a gun, you start shooting away. It's my privilege to kill this animal. I don't need to. You know, it's not. It's not intelligent. It doesn't have feelings. You know, which I've talked about in a war situation. That's what you do. You're you're programmed to, to make the enemy faceless. They're, they're, um, they're the enemy. You, you gotta kill them, you gotta murder them. No, you know, you don't wanna use that word murder. It's in defense of your country. <laughs> so you dehumanize them and you, de, you desynthesize the animal. It's, it doesn't have feelings. You know, the insect doesn't have feelings. The plant doesn't have feelings, so you can destroy it. And then everything, you know, when you start defining things by your species only, then you're really that's that's a problem too so would, how would we do if we met an alien i don't think very and there's been some movies about it. i think we'd have some problems especially right now and we have problems with each other you know between cultures between countries between nato between non-nato you know it's just this and and even termites you know they're very very careful about where they place their their home you know, termites are very are a warrior species, especially in Africa. Don't mess with termites, <laughs> even more so than some of these ants in the Amazon. Termites, uh, they know the distance they have to place their their home, and they set them up in these in the savanna in these different places. Uh, and I, you know, that's something that we have to resolve as a species uh, when we're different from each other. How do you get along? How do I respect your land? How do I respect your home? How do I respect what you are? And I think that indigenous values, all, especially in the Amazon basin, uh, Mexico, or all these tribes in the south, is about respect. You know, how do, you know, there's a hundred different tribes in southern Mexico or more. All these 
language is spoken. Oh my God. It's like here in the Pueblos, there's 19, 20 different languages spoke. How do you get along? Uh, or like Zuni, it has an Iceland language. You have no idea. There's no other language related to that in linguistics. It's, it's, a, it's an isolate. When there's an isolate language, a lot of times that's actually the more ancient language. Uh, and it's not related to the, any other language groups. You can trace a tribe, a clan, by its language systems a lot of times and how they migrated. Because there'll be a lot more people, say, up in the north speaking uh, this type of language versus this other type of language. Um, for instance, like Askabaskan that the Navajo and Apache people speak, uh, it's, it's strong related to northern linguistics up, or, you know, where the, the Inuit, in, or we call the Eskimo, live. And these, they're related to those tribes in the north. Now that does, it's like my friend that's a um, Diné Navajo, and they have lots of different clans too, both traced through the father and the mother. Zunis do this too. Hopis trace through the mother, matriarchal. Um, the, you know, the, the, Nay, the, Hope, the Navajo tribe didn't come to <laughs> the Southwest in 1506. They didn't time that the entire tribe would arrive at that time. They came in clans. They came in groups of people. Um, and it took a long time. And they, this may have happened very slowly. So yeah, they may have come from the north, but it may have taken thousands of years to do that. And uh, that's each of these clans, uh, the Diné clans, have their own histories, have their own sort of intact belief systems. And even the language in Diné can change according to the area and even the clan. So I, I think sometimes we see the whole tribe, and when you come to these intact tribes, like certainly like the Navajo, there's different regions, there's different dialects, there's different clans. Uh, and different ways of keeping track of knowledge. And they have these forbiddens, and they have these things that you can and can't do. And so, it, you know, along with the language migrating into an area like the Southwest, comes all these uh, mythologies from the North, comes all these things that you do and don't do, and you carry those with you. And then you incorporate other things from the surrounding tribes when you come there. It's a very complex thing, and so I have a hard time with these dates that we... <laughs> like the pilgrims in 1620 you really can't do that with a tribe even though archaeologists think they can because it's a trickling that's going on and before there's these tribes like Zuni and Hopi and um, Santo Domingo and there's a lot of different pueblos in the Rio Grande there's the there's the wandering band there's the wandering clan before they came together as a, as a people and they may have different types of language like in Hopi you have Hano on one mesa, and you have uh, you have a different dialect, a Hopi spoken, an interfusion of that language, and then there's a fit forbidden where you can't use that language, or you can. And I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's amazing when a couple can meet and have a romance, sleep in the same bed, live in the same house, and they come from entirely different families. Or if you're in a localized region, you may have dated the same girl in the same city, same high school, and your families may even be somewhat related, especially in the Mormon communities I grew up in. Those all came from the Midwest to the to the West. They migrated as pioneers. And so a lot of these families are are related to each other. That's why you have genetic problems like heart problems and certain kinds of cancer because there's an intermarriage taking place. Uh, but when you have families that are, you know, where you're especially interracial families, as we call them, black and white, or um, you marry a girl from Peru, from Lima, or Cusco, and you're from New York City, or you're from the Jewish 
Orthodox religion and you marry a Mormon, or, or, or in the instance here, there's a lot of Jewish people that married into um, the tribes here. So you, you, it's always fascinating when you bring two, two affinities together that are completely different from each other, and they're married and they have kids. It's not always successful. It's very hard to breach your culture. It's very hard to intermix your culture because that's why it's a culture. That's why it's a tribe. That's why it's a language. Uh, is that you, it's thousands of years of protecting that, of having a tradition and a system, of thinking you're the, you're the only one, that you're the, the one that God smiles on, that you're the one that's... And these tribes are like that too. They have this, we're, the, we're the first people. We're the ones that carry all the knowledge. Uh, and, and I think each religion likes to think that too. And I can understand that. That's how you survive. That's how you have an affinity for things. That's how you understand the world. But it's especially fascinating when two people get together and they love each other a lot. You know, I, I had, when I was at the University of Utah, I had a, a man and woman. They were 20, 21. One, this is crazy. One was from Palestine and one was from Jerusalem, Israel. The woman was a beautiful Jewish woman very traditional and her husband was Palestinian <laughs> Islamic and because they loved each other they had a way to uh, to bring those two two traditions to extremely different traditions in some ways and, and someone alike to bring them together their love and then they had these children how do you teach those children what do you give those children hey I'm right hey I'm right no hey we have thousands you know these these tribes how do you work that out and with the tribes here in the southwest there, there's a pride if you go to a big dance like at Hopi and you're having a beautiful dance with these f amazing kachinas and there's all kinds of different types these other tribes come and they've intermarried into the Hopi tribe or they are my wife's Hopi and I'm Lakota Sioux and they have their histories and they're, and they're, they're good they're good at, at, at coming together and they have these little ceremonies and they, and they smoke and they pray and they and they exchange traditions and they and they and they carry survival strategies and they carry ways to live in certain different types of landscapes and a tribe increases its affinity and ability to survive when it brings in these different types of knowledge under you know that tribe system so it's just it's amazing but my thing is is how did how do you the other how do you how do you come together or how don't you come together and this is where this is kind of heading even though we're moving over the one hour time limit here of course you know our podcasts tend to center sometimes go two hours mostly an hour a little more so we're i won't make this full three hours into uh into a podcast i just kind of uh, give you the first part here so this is heading in a direction i hope i can include at least this in at least where this thought's going in this uh later on what will be a podcast uh, i'm gonna grab some coffee here Let's go to a song, actually.
that was a wolf song by the tribes up there in the Northlands, the Cree, up there in the Northwestern Territories in Canada, um, where the wolf is very sacred. Well, there's a lot more wolves, um, where the wolf is a, a little more common than down here, where we like to shoot and kill it. Yeah, too sad, too bad, huh? Uh, but the wolf is uh, an amazing communicator, not only in body language, but in these calls that can be heard for literally miles, especially up in the clarity of the high mountain terrain, and sometimes even in deserts. You know, the, the Mexican wolf here used to be in the desert here. Um, so these, these, and coyotes are the same way. They have these calls that go for an immense distance. And we know uh, the, often the gender by the call and what the what the call's for, if it's for a mate, for pups. Um, and there's a, it, it's fairly sophisticated. So, um, yes, um, the pack knows how to communicate if, it's, if it hasn't been decimated by being shot and killed. And that's where you get the lone wolf or stray wolves. Mostly is from the packs that have been decimated and murdered and killed. And so they don't have in, this is their communication. It's like a killer whales in their, in their pods. Um, they grow up with a certain way. This is an entire family. When you wipe it out and there's only two or three left, it's, it's, it's crazy stuff. And um, it's insane is what it is. And so um, if you have a, a totally healthy pack, then it's, you know, it's the grandparents. It's, it's the, it's, these, these are relatives. And they occasionally have new wolves come in and other ones leave and go and form new packs. But pack is very um, close and may have been going on for generations. When you annihilate these things without any kind of preference, you just go in and kill. It causes this massive confusion. This is another way to stop communication. If you're the last surviving member of your pack or your tribe or, or your town or city that has a language, you know, we, we don't really understand that because so many people speak English. But one day, one day, English may not be the dominant language. And you could be, somebody in your family could be the last speaker of that language. 100, 200 years down the road. The la and when you are the last speaker, and there's a lot of books on this, with you goes the history and the culture. And these are things that these tribes here in the Southwest fight for resilience to keep their language intact, to keep their ceremonies intact. And so, um, and that's part of how we communicate as humans, is our language. If it's not verbal, then we have, you know, if you're deaf or mute, you have a way to communicate, you have a language there. So, yeah. I guess one of the things I'm beginning to wonder, at least in terms of my friends that I have, many of them are experiencing a kind of isolationism that I've never seen before. I'm sure that's partly connected to COVID um, and uh, all the things that happen with the isolation there and the sickness and vaccinations, no vaccinations, and the divisions that that made uh, in our culture here in the United States that still continue, we still continue to uh, feel the effect of that. Uh, whenever it gets over, depending on who you are and what you think. And I, but I think more so our technology has allowed us to just be able to sit in our houses, in our homes or on a device, and not really connect to people physically. And, you know, a lot of these ancient times, you're driven 
because you're you're on a, a huge vast landscape uh, the city the urbanized environment which you know I think are right around 17 that's a Neolithic age but as cities started to rise up in Mesopotamia now we're starting to think the same thing that there was a comparable thing going on in South America and uh, that we may be looking at antiquity here in the Americas it's almost as ancient as that in the old world uh, and you know there's reasons that the field of our archaeology is very uh, biased sorry but that's one of my majors and I have and there's I really did see a very biased sort of way of seeing or at least early archaeology and I th and there's all these little schools of thought within the pseudo you know the science uh, you have to use that loosely uh, the nationalism the uh, ethnicity uh, within archaeology so yeah these these kind of dates are are questionable outsiders insiders but it was a, an opportunity to go in a, a city an urbanized environment uh, especially know about those in, in Mexico City and Central America um, and uh, Mesopotamia you know it's a ancient Greece to go to a city was a was an opportunity because all the resources were there there were a lot of people there uh, and you didn't have to hunt as much and you had maybe an army that was defending you you know and this is you know the whole thing of being a being with other people but now there's so these cities are so huge unparalleled in human history you know millions and millions people 40 50 60 70 million people in one city it's it's mind-boggling uh, and, and 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 then with control over capital and uh, classification of, of systems middle class if there's even if that even exists anymore in the United States upper class lower I, I don't even the class system is very distinguished in these in these systems these city cities and urbanized environment the the ethnicity um, and I think it's always been that way but it's more so because there's so many of us and so does that does that does that component isolate us uh, naturally and then our devices where you can sit in a house and you can connect to everything movies you don't need to go to a movie house anymore to see a movie I mean, it used to be a it used to be a big deal if somebody had a, a projector when I was growing up. You know, these 16 millimeter projectors that you had at school. If somebody had one of those or a Super 8 projector, it was a big deal. Everybody went over to their house and watched these little these little films. That used to be a community thing. Or families would get together and watch their their trip on the Super 8 camera. Super 8 is this beautiful medium. You know, before we had this highly uh, digital video where everything's so perfect you know it doesn't even look real <laughs> the clarity's like and everybody you know it's just so common now but it used to be fairly uncommon it's expensive to have a projector to have a super 8 camera uh, to get it developed and then to show your films of where you went it's a big deal uh, people families and neighborhood used to have dinners and they'd show these you know you sit there to the kid and you'd watch the the the, the fishing trip you know, out on the Pacific Ocean, the salmon fishing trip with the family, or or the the trip to um, Sequoia National Park, and 
Secret were a big deal. Now they're just so common. It's, it's just, you know, we're so barraged by it constantly in everybody's video of going here, doing this, that it's not even a, it's, in fact, it's far beyond a rarity. It's just, it's just irritating. And that's one of the things, too, I, I look at in these broadcasts is what can I bring to you that's unique and um, makes you think a little bit and is it worth listening to? And I think what I find with a lot of the listeners here, they're kind of individualists. They're kind of, most of my listeners, at least the email I get, are isolationists. <laughs> and that was my whole thing about AM radio, shortwave radio. I mean, you have to really earn it. It's, it's kind of, you can't just click it and it's there. You just sit back. Things are so easy that we don't, we're not even motivated to see, to see them as something unique. I mean, when you have so much of something, you know, it's just, who wants to watch another family vacation video? You know, not, not too many. <laughs> so the novelty of it is not a novelty. In fact, you know, now with the way social media is set up, it just throws the video in your face. You, don't, you might not even want to watch it. And then you got to think about how do you keep an audience? You know, that's a lot of work, uh, especially in a radio medium. How many people are really listening to you? You know, and a big thing now in digital medium, social media is these big, huge YouTube channels. Half the, half, the, half the likes, half the people on there are fake. They're not even real. You can buy that. Uh, and I've, I've studied that. It's very interesting. The more money you spend, the more likes you can get. And a lot of those are not real. They're robots. They're, they're self-generating to keep you on the site. These dating services, the same thing. It's a big, huge scandal right now, you know. is They want you to stay on the dating service. They don't want you to actually meet somebody. And they have these stories where somebody met, and I know a couple of people that met and even got married. But for the most part, they're just uh, failures. And if they can just keep generating you, you know, throw the carrot out there, and you can see somebody you'd like to date, and you write them letters... What you find out is that's not even a real person. <laughs> so you're going to pay your fee every month. And it allows you to sit in this isolation and isolated environment in your house. And, 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 and you desire somebody. You want to meet somebody. But more of what it is, it's just surfing through all these endless pictures of people. Uh, and so the dating, it's, it's a big scandal right now. Is Are you really meeting people? And if you do meet someone... You know, will you ever talk in real life? And that's another, you know, it's a challenge to be in a relationship, especially if it's long term. It's not an, it's not an easy situation. Even if you love someone, it's a lot of work. And I, and I think when you're on in the digital medium all the time and you can just, you know, I think that was one of the most surprising things. For a long time, I didn't really get involved in social media. So I was surprised that midway through a conversation, it just stopped. And then you wouldn't hear from that person for two or three days maybe even a week and there was no like hello and goodbye we do in green so when your friends come over you give a hug and say goodbye they don't just like get up in the middle of the conversation and leave and close the door without explaining themselves the etiquette of conversation is, is in a lot of ways is a complete failure or you get these long texts that go on and on and on you know we can you know you could talk for two or three hours to a friend in your house uh, I just had a, a close friend come to my house, and it's nice to see her. We're really close. We share a lot of the same affinities, and but our texts were far and few in between. You know, there'd be months, weeks <laughs> between texts. But when we came, you know, when we came together, you know, at my house, there was a long conversation that went on. It was beautiful. And sometimes we didn't even talk. You're just in proximity of that individual, and it's just this really beautiful experience 
that would take hours of texting and reading experience of being there in person is like you can't really create that even if you have video it gets it gets tiresome i had a girlfriend what we would um talk a couple of girls <laughs> i had some really in-depth relationships with multimedia where i sent videos and we sent art and we were texting all day long back and forth and built up a relationship over a couple of years and i think i've talked about this in previous broadcasts uh, finally, uh, the girlfriend I had at that time uh, from South Africa was like, we, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Either you fly here and we meet and, you know, and see what each other's like and try to have a romantic relationship in the physical or we're dropping this because I'm tired of reading texts and seeing pictures. Uh, it's time to touch and feel. It's time to, to, it's the challenge of actually being there. That's that's an interesting part. You know, it used to be you, you dated somebody and, and it took a while to have sex with them. It took a while to kiss them, you know, when I'm talking romantic. Uh, and, and if you jumped into it suddenly, it could actually ruin a relationship. There's a pregnancy in there. Uh, if, there's a, if there's something that makes you have to be together, like COVID. I had a couple of friends that were in relationships, both gay and not gay, and, and their relationships were intense during COVID. They almost had to be in the same room all the time with each other. Something that most relationships you're not. You know, having been in a couple of very long-term relationships, you, you know, you're together a lot, and then you go out and you work, and you do your thing, and you come back. It's, it's pretty hard to be one-on-one all the time with someone. Uh, and, and there's a lot of formalities, and there's a lot of things, there's a lot of do's and don'ts, and a lot of different kinds of communication but during COVID it was difficult because you're with that person all the time and so it's, it's being accelerated all the things that you like and don't like about that person so I and I think being obligated to a relationship you know having laws and rules saying we're going to be married and these are the things we're going to do and not do and, or, or whatever whatever are people more lonely than ever before or do they have the chance to be alone and survive you don't have the desire to go out and push yourself to meet somebody i talked about this too i can go downtown now here in flagstaff we had a lot of tourists that come to grand canyon that come to the ski resort that go out into the go to the tribes you know to the different reservations there's a lot of things to do in northern arizona because it's so beautiful and the landscape so diverse it's one of the most beautiful landscapes in the entire world and it's extremely diverse so a lot of people come here to flagstaff i mean you can sit in downtown flagstaff and meet people from all over the world in an hour I've sat on a park bench because, you know, I like to talk to people a lot. Um, it's amazing. Uh, one day I think I met 10 different people from 10 different <laughs> countries. Some couldn't even speak English and I couldn't speak their language. Or I'm trying to help them get around. Or they want to go out to the Hopi or Diné or Monument Valley and you need directions. Or they want, what's the best way to grow a Grand Canyon? Have you been down in Grand Canyon? What's the best hike to take? Um, you know, conversations like, like that. And there's a cuckoo clock. Um, but the thing that's happening now is, um, you see, when you're, you know, there's all these people downtown and you're walking back and forth on the sidewalks or going in these little shops with, with art and, and, and Nava, you know, tribal art and unique things at Flagstaff, people don't want to look at you. They don't want to uh, connect to you. There's There's this 
you put your cell phone up so you don't have to look at that person or talk to them. Especially if you're alone. Or, you know, this is my world and don't get into it. And I have my, my cell phone I'm going to put up in front of my face so I don't have to look at you or talk to you. It's a challenge in any situation, and especially in these ancient tribes when you're out in this vast landscape, if two different clans or bands came together, there was a whole formality like the coyote. What do you do? How do you, you know, there may be a confrontation there. There may be a war. Uh, like like the, these African termites, if they meet each other, they fight to the death. I mean, there's very powerful um, forbiddens. There are very, very powerful rules for uh, interchange, ex exchange. Uh, and now, and it takes, it takes, it's, it, it, it's an art form. I mean, you have to know how to do that. You have to know how to communicate with people. If you're a salesman and you have to interact with people, that's how you make your money, then you know you've got to, you've got to, you have to have a kind of greeting. You have to make people relax. Uh, and, but it, I think a lot of times now our technology is, you, you see people, I was just, where was I? And I was one of them. I don't typically uh, carry a cell phone when I'm around, uh, but it happened to be that I'm trying to remember. Um, oh, I was in a I was in a uh, a medical clinic uh, for a checkup, and there were uh, I was a, there was four of us in there, and and I had went there before, and I had a book. But I knew I needed to take my cell phone because that's how you fill out the uh, forms now. You don't you don't write on paper anymore. You get online and you fill out the forms for the doctor and for them to have on a record. So I brought my cell phone with me. You're just sitting there. I mean, I like to sit and watch and look at people, but it it was getting a little uncomfortable. And people didn't want me. And I noticed every person in there <laughs> had the cell phone up in front of their face. There was no hello. There was no eye contact. Uh, there was no like you're in your space. And that happened all all the way through. Of course, when you got back into your exam room, then there's a you've got to interact with the doctor. You have to interact with the people back there. And there's other patients. There's this there's these protocols. There's these observations. And if you don't do them, if you're not involved in relationships, if you don't have to expend the effort to be in a relationship, to to survive a relationship, to uh, survive the temper tantrums, or to survive the I'm sick of you, or let's not have so much sex, or leave me alone, or you know, all and or, or I love you, and here's, and are you gonna watch the kids today? Um, you know, all these things you have to are involved in a in a serious relationship, and it's something you have to learn to do. And if you don't learn that, then it's it's a problem. And I think I see a lot of times now where people aren't interacting with each other, including myself. You run away from the the. Um, the meeting, the connection. And so is the technology allowing us the comfort that we don't have to make this breach the, the gap between each other, the gap between different worlds, the gap between different countries? I thought it was interesting. I don't know if anybody paid attention to this, but one of the biggest complaints the Russians had is there's nobody in the United States and the Ukraine thing to, to talk to us. In, in the level of our culture, in the level of what's going on. We had this brilliant person named Kissinger that really could interact with the Chinese. He just is, I think he was raised in Germany, but he had this propensity to be able to get people to talk that wouldn't talk normally. 
He was a brilliant negotiator. This is always important with tribes early on, is having a person that could speak the language and that could negotiate and know the culture. And having spent time in a lot of different cultures, especially tribal cultures, you got it. You know, you don't just go to, to Hopi or to Zuni, and you know, be be who you are. You have to observe etiquette. You have to have etiquette. You have to you have to observe protocols. Uh, who do you know? What clan are they in? Um, you know, have you ever been around here before? Have you ever been to this ceremony? Are you even supposed to be here? You're, this is a sacred object. Don't touch it. You're not allowed into this. You're prohibited from going in this kiva. There's all kinds of observation, all kinds of things you have to observe. And when you don't understand those rules of etiquette, it causes wars. And I think, in particular, the Ukrainian situation to me was a huge breakdown in communications, where one country suffered tremendously because of two world powers caught in the middle, all these innocent people. And one is this NATO or is this not NATO? Is this, is this, we don't want the United States here, they've got, they breached, they're too close. We, you know, there's differences of opinion and, and not having a, the ability to negotiate. And I think it's a huge problem. I think isolationism is becoming quite frightening, actually. Not only with our country, but with Russia. You know, you have China that's really, for the first time ever, trying to reach out. You want to get involved in the marketing systems. They're going to release this brand new electric car called the Polestar, probably the most sophisticated and beautiful electric car in the world. Most powerful, for sure. Uh, and, the, and the Chinese are looking at these innovations. They want, you know, they have their own way of doing things. It isn't like the United States. They have their own kind of history that's radically different and much more long-term than the United States. The British Empire has its way of doing things. The Irish tribal people have their way of doing things. And I think what, what I'm starting to see is the technology is allowing us, because the computers do it for us, the AI does it for us, we just sit back and do our thing and let the computers do it. Hey, this program will, can speak 20 different languages. Hey, we'll send you this email. Hey, um, we won't even talk to you. Hey, we'll go to Taiwan and we'll violate these... You know, I, I don't know. I, so, is it better or is it worse? I mean, what do you do when you face the other that's vastly different with you? Do you convert them to your religion? Do you convert them to your culture? Or do they resist? And they don't want nothing to do with it. You know, ant colonies are like that. Termites are like that. You resist because this is the way you survive. This is your home. This is your family. You know, wolf... Uh, packs are like that they know to respect each other they have these parameters you you know the wolf pack is generally we used to say alpha omega and that's still used kind of but what you have is that's the that's the grandparents and that's all their children and that you know that it's it's a pack that has a genetic connection i mean there's diversity where a wolf will venture out into another pack and form a new family and you know it's not any different than people but my question is, if we become so isolated, it's becoming insane. Where you never leave your sofa, you never leave your cell phone or your computer. You don't have to interact. You don't have to be un uncomfortable. You can retreat to your home. You can retreat behind the security software. You don't have to think about homeless people out there. Does our so-called special needs disabilities isolate us? That we can't communicate, that, we have, that we're nonverbal? that we, we have such sensitivities that the technology does help us. 
simply that we can communicate. That's often why I use mechanical voices in my programs is because of my, my deceased girlfriend, Tiva. She was just a beautiful soul. It's extremely intelligent, but she couldn't always verbally communicate what she wanted to. Uh, and, and she had a way of going out and doing the solo. She just would leave the relationship, uh, the friendship, because she knew she would go through these tremendous traumas, these personality switches, and so she would retreat and leave so you wouldn't have to go through all this. Although I wonder if she realized how much heartache you'd go through when she just left. But some some people, that's all they, that's the only way they have to communicate is the mechanical voice. They, they speak to you. Have you seen these talking machines? If you're mute that you use, you push a button or a sound and it'll communicate with with you. I don't I I worked a lot with people with so called disabilities, special needs, and they're that that were nonverbal, that were mute, that were deaf. There's all these different ways of communicating. And it's so the technology I think in some ways is extremely helpful, but if we use it so much that it doesn't push us to, to interact, to work, work beyond our limitations, that can be a problem. Where, you know, it, everything's so easy and you're so fat and you said all the time, and I, excuse that word, I, when I say fat, I just mean you're sedentary. And I'm not talking about physically being overweight because I find that actually attractive in some of the people I know. I'm just talking about you're so sedentary and, you're, and you, you, you don't, interact your, your jobs in your house um, and you don't you get your groceries delivered to you and you're texting you know and I'm, I'm guilty of this because I can really be an isolationist I'm out there in the wilderness in the forest and then I come home and I do all my work on the computer and the digital environment where I do my art and my editing and you know I can really isolate myself too all right I'm gonna kind of bring this to a close. We, we ran over 33 minutes here. Um, of course, this will keep going on, but if it's a podcast, I, you got to kind of make time limitations, and I'm certainly not Joe Rogan. <laughs> I can't go three and four hours. Uh, it's, it's hard enough probably to listen to me for 30 minutes, <laughs> but I'm trying to, my thing is being your friend, uh, having, for having a conversation in my living room, not be too professional, and just to interject some interesting ideas and get you to think and enjoy things and um, maybe better ourselves. All right, this is In Between Stations Radio uh, and 3731 kilohertz, the 80 meter band. Uh, we're gonna play a couple of songs. Man, we better only play one song and it better be short. <laughs> Signing off the air. Good night, love you, see you tomorrow night.
Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA.